Hi folks, this is Andy, the analytical preacher. The fight that happened centuries ago between the Catholic Church and primarily Galileo, but really the scientific community, over what is called the heliocentric model, this idea that the sun is the center of our solar system, not the earth. That fight between the Catholic Church and Galileo has really brought a lot of criticism onto the Bible. It's brought a lot of criticism onto Christianity in general over the centuries. It's really important to understand neither the Bible nor Christianity at large ever made those unscientific, really we would today just call them, never made those ridiculous claims. It was the Catholic Church, and more specifically, it was really a few leaders in the Catholic Church that made those claims. And what I want to do is discuss not just that it was the Catholic Church, but why the leaders of the Catholic Church chose to do that. And so again, let me start by saying, nowhere does the Bible say that the earth is the center of the solar system, the universe, or anything else. Nowhere does it say that the sun is not at the center of the solar system or of the universe. And no other Christian denomination has ever believed that, has ever stated that. Again, this was an episode that involved a few scientists and a few leaders in the Catholic Church. So let me discuss first why the Catholic Church leaders in those days, as we say in America, chose to die on that hill. Because really, the Catholic Church was permanently tarnished. Their image has been harmed, understandably so, to this day, because they took a stand that said, we know this must be true because the Catholic Church says it is true. Science has proven without a doubt that it is not true, and it really tarnishes and continues to tarnish the Catholic Church's image. The answer here is super, super simple. They chose to die on that hill, not because they truly believed that Scripture taught that the earth was at the center of the solar system, but simply because they were losing earthly power. They were losing earthly influence, and they felt like this was the straw that might break the camel's back. Let me explain. For more than a thousand years, the Catholic Church in Europe maintained this absolute stronghold, not just on Christian believers in God and in Christ and in the Bible, not only a stronghold on how one is allowed to interpret the Bible, far beyond just religious authority and influence, they had political influence, they had scientific influence, they had cultural influence. They worked with European kings, they helped to issue laws, they instigated wars and had intentionally established themselves as an authoritative source on topics, everything from religion to science to philosophy. But over time, as human knowledge began to grow, nothing in the Bible was ever proven, or to this day, nothing in the Bible has ever been proven to be untrue. But as human knowledge began to grow, some of the false man-made beliefs that Catholic leaders had put out there were one by one proving to not be true. And in other ways, they were just losing authority. Most folks know the history of the Protestant Reformation. In the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he kicked off this irreversible flood of the Protestant break 
with the Catholic Church. And that has never changed. And if anything, over time, the Catholic Church has continued to weaken from that Protestant Reformation. In 1536, just a few years later, King Henry, I believe it was King Henry VIII, he left the Catholic Church and he formed the Church of England or the Anglican Church. Now, King Henry wasn't really doing it for religious reasons, but again, for more political reasons. But in one fell swoop, King Henry took both religious and political power away from the leaders of the Catholic Church. Then in 1543, Copernicus, right before he passed, published a book and it contained the theory, it contained the idea of this heliocentric model of the solar system. So when Galileo began, in 1616 really, to push this idea that the sun was the center of our solar system and the earth and other planets moved around it, the Catholic Church said, we have simply lost too much authority, too much status, too much power, and we will push back on this. They were just reeling from their loss of power, authority, status. I'm not going to go into it in this podcast and other podcasts. I have explained not only how the Bible is compatible with science, but even the idea that the Bible was necessary as a catalyst to really foster the whole scientific approach. I I discuss how the Bible compels Christians actually to engage in scientific endeavors. And I speak about how all the things that the Bible speaks of scientifically have been proven true in so many places where the Bible is silent. Science has filled in the gaps for us. You can find those podcasts, The Relationship Between the Bible and Science Part 1, The Relationship Between the Bible and Science Part 2. So I don't want to go into what, how does the Bible and science interact with one another. I've got podcasts on that. I really want to look at the Catholic Church and Galileo and what happened here. So the reason they opposed the heliocentric model of Copernicus and Galileo was because it was costing them power and status and authority. And all of a sudden, learned scientific men, these mathematicians, were going to be able to influence what people believed and what people thought. Not about God, not about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is all the Catholic Church should have been worried about, but scientific matters. The church decided, they, the Catholic Church decided they didn't want to lose that authority and power. And so they fought Galileo pretty hard. But here's the question. What should they have taken from the scriptures? If they just said, let us read the Bible and objectively say, what does it say? They would have come to a totally different conclusion. Here's the classic mistake that the Catholic Church leaders made. They knew what they wanted the Bible to say, and they went into the scriptures looking to prove what they already believe. Now, we do that in every area of our lives. We do that in politics, and we do that in law, and we do that in economics. It's absolutely condemned to do that. It's absolutely forbidden to do that in Christian circles. We have to go into Scripture looking to say, what is God really saying to us? So let me look at a few of the Scriptures that were brought up not only in those days, but today as we rediscuss this argument. Let me look at a few of the Scriptures and show you how I believe they should have been examined and interpreted. The first scripture we're going to look at is Psalm 104, and we're just going to look at a couple of the relevant verses here. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9 say this, He, meaning God, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. 
At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down, that they might not again cover the earth. I mentioned in a podcast about where did the water come from for the flood in Noah's time and where did the water go for the flood in Noah's time. I mentioned this verse. Those verses are written about the flood waters. How did enough water to flood the earth ultimately settle in and allow us livable land area? And this is speaking to exactly how that happened. Again, I don't need to recover it. You can listen to the Noah's Flood podcast if you're interested. But if you just read these verses, and even if you're cognizant of the fact that this is really speaking about where the water went from Noah's flood, it says, God has set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And you could easily read this as the earth sits on a literal foundation and it is literally sitting in a stationary point. And so the idea then, this still doesn't say that the earth is the center of the solar system. But you could say, yeah, but the earth can't be revolving around the sun because it is sitting stationary on a foundation. Here's the problem with interpreting that verse that way. We always interpret scripture with scripture. What else would I interpret scripture with? If I interpret scripture with how I define words, if I interpret scripture with my feelings or my emotions or my own personal experiences, everybody would come to radically different interpretations of the same scripture. And so scripture is interpreted with scripture. And in fact, some of the most beautiful and powerful lessons that we pull from scripture is when we take something and it seems to say something so definite. And then we read another scripture and it refines our idea. It smooths up, it resettles that idea. And it paints a much broader, much more complex picture than what we had thought going in. And so interpreting scripture or scripture is the only way we can do it and be objectively consistent. And it's also the most beautiful and powerful way to interpret scripture. I could go on for hours. Let me give you just one example here. In Job 26, 7. And so God is talking to Job about how Job doesn't really understand as much as Job might think that he understands when he wants to question God. Job 26, 7 just says this. He, God, stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. If I just read that verse, which for centuries people thought was absolute insanity, that the earth was just hanging in space on nothing. Turns out, of course, that's exactly true. It's held in space by gravity, but no one knew that these words were written in Job. If I just read, and I chose to believe it because it was God's word, that the earth is just hanging. It's just suspended in space on nothing. There's nothing holding it up from the top. There's no foundation under the bottom. Then you would think that earth is sort of just like this random thing that floats around sort of like a balloon. I can fill a balloon up and pop it up in the air. The currents will carry it. I can put helium in a balloon and it'll float off in sort of a random direction. Tomorrow, I could fill another balloon up with helium and send it, and it might go in a totally different direction, reach a totally different height in the atmosphere, etc. And so this idea that the earth just hangs on nothing has this feeling of just this random balloon bouncing around in space. When we combine these two, we get something such as the earth is suspended on nothing. The earth is hanging in space on nothing. There is no hook. There is no 
literal foundation. And yet it says that God has set it on a foundation so that it shouldn't be moved. How do we merge those two things together? Well, I think we would say the earth won't be moved out of the place that God appointed for it in the universe. And what Psalm 104 is saying, this world-altering catastrophic flood has come down and changed the land masses and changed the size and depth of the oceans and wiped out most living things. And even through this insane earthly catastrophe of the worldwide flood in Noah's time, the earth is still set on the foundations that God gave for it. And it won't be moved out of the place, position that God has properly assigned to it. Even though we understand that's not a literal foundation and a stationary point because the earth is suspended in space and floating on nothing. And so we could not take from these verses that the earth is at the center of the solar system. No such thing is said. And we would be very hesitant to take from these verses that the earth doesn't move at all. What it, what we would take from these verses is this floating earth, instead of randomly floating around in the universe, it floats around in a systematic way. It will never be moved off the path that God has intended for it. Even when catastrophes happen on the earth, it's still going to be moving in the sense positioned in the sense that God has assigned to it. Another verse that the Catholic Church tried to hang their hat on was in Joshua 10. Let me read those verses. Joshua 10, 12, and 13 say this. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? The interpretation that the Catholic leaders wanted to pull from this is that if the sun could, quote unquote, stand still at Gibeon, then it must be the sun that moves, not the earth. Again, this doesn't say that the earth is the center of the universe, which was really the fight. And it doesn't say that the sun is not at the center of the solar system, which again was really the fight. But they making an indirect argument, if the sun moves to the point that it could stand still at some point, then it's the sun that moves and not the earth and Galileo must be wrong. Here's the problem. We're reading these verses in English. These verses were not written in English. They were written in Hebrew. So we need to really go back and look at the original Hebrew and say, what do these words really mean? This word that gets translated stand still is the Hebrew word damam. And the word literally means to make something go quiet. And so it's often used idea of Not just something that might make noise that's now been silenced, that's now been made to go quiet, but sort of the idea of anything that's taken out of its normal path, anything that stops doing its normal function is said to have gone quiet. It's not doing what it normally does. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. The Hebrew word for stopped, and so it the moon stopped, the sun stopped. That Hebrew word for stopped is amad. And it really means to stand your ground or to endure or to persist 
in this change that you've made. So that's how we would read that word. And then the word to set, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven, did not hurry to set for about a whole day. The Hebrew word for set here is the word bow, and it means to come to pass, to come upon, to light upon, or to fall upon in an attack. So this idea of setting, it's not the way a meteorologist would use the word the sun set. Again, it has this idea of falling upon something in attack. So if we translate those words as stand still and set, we get sort of a picture of the sun moves and what happened is Joshua set it and the sun stopped moving. It didn't set below the horizon and until the vengeance had been taken and then it did. But if we look at the literal translations of the Hebrew words, we get something more like this. Joshua said to the sun, go quiet from your normal course of action. And the sun acted in that manner. The sun stopped its normal course of action from the human perspective on earth, at least, until the nation took vengeance. Is it not written that the sun persisted and endured in this way in the midst of heaven, that the sun did not hurry to go back to its original state for about a whole day. The clearest thing to me as I read these verses, I would say is, it sounds to me like this is defining a solar eclipse. They're fighting. Joshua says, son, I know what you normally do this time of day is shine brightly from overhead and we don't see the moon this time of day. But here's what I'm saying. I want you to go quiet. I want you to cease doing what you normally do, which is shine down upon us. And I want the moon to do what it doesn't normally do and cover the sun. And I want that to persist until we've taken vengeance on our enemies. And remember, guys, I'm writing, Joshua says, I'm writing this book of history, but if you go look at other historical Hebrew books, you'll also see they talked about this idea that the sun ceased to do its normal function and didn't, and persisted in not performing that normal function and didn't pass back to its original state for about a whole day. So the Bible is silent on what's at the center of the solar system or what's at the center of the universe. The Bible is essentially silent on whether the sun moves or whether the earth moves. Because when you read language in Psalm 104 or Joshua 10, you realize when I look at the context of those verses, when I look at the verses that refine those verses like Job 26, 7, or when I look at the actual Hebrew words, I realize, wow, the English translators didn't do a real good job of translating those verses. They assumed what must have happened is the sun stopped at a position in the sky and did not move from that position until vengeance was taken. And so they translated the word sun stand still and the sun stood still and it didn't set for about a whole day. But if I go back and look at the literal, most literal interpretation of those Hebrew words, I might have actually said, the sun stopped shining as it did because of the position of the moon relative to it. And those two positions persisted for about a whole day 
before things went back to the normal course of action where the sun shines in the day and the moon is bright at night. If we interpret scripture objectively, if we interpret scripture with scripture, if we look at the original meaning of the original language in this case, which would have been Hebrew in all of these verses, we get a totally different view. If we say we want to make an absolute statement that the sun is at the center of the solar system, though the Bible never says that, we can take scripture and twist it to get what we want. And again, I think this brought a great deal of infamy on the Catholic Church and the Catholic leaders as it should have, but it leaves the Bible itself and the rest of Christianity untouched and unscathed by this scandal of the Catholic Church and Galileo. And it reminds us as Christians today, we must be exceedingly careful when we interpret Scripture. And we must always be able to show that we've interpreted Scripture with other Scripture. And we must always be able to point back to the literal and most common meanings of the Hebrew or Greek words that we are translating into English as we do our Bible studies. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Andy.